Second Kings 24. Second Kings 24. The whole theme of both kings, or they're originally one book, and the theme is covenants and character, both God's covenant and his faithfulness to it, and his character that he never wavers, never changes. His people, they don't always keep their side of the covenant. Their character wavers. And we're in a period right now where the character is plummeting. Just Josiah's death, uh, he was the last good king that Judah had. It occurred during a politically charged time. The Babylonians were in the process of conquering the Assyrians, and the Egyptians were stepping into the power vacuum that was left in the Promised Land. And in, that meant in Judah, you were either one of two groups. You were either pro-Egypt or you were pro-Babylon. Now, the pro-Babylon view was seen as the, the patriotic view. These are people who don't want to mess with us. They just want to get rid of the Assyrians. And so this is the, the view that leaves us the most free, the most self-governing. And so that's where you want to be if you are a patriot. The pro-Egypt view was, was seen as like a global view, like as a, a non-freedom view, that embracing Egypt meant just trading Assyria as an oppressor as a, that we would pay tribute to. We're just trading Assyria for Egypt. And of course, Israel has a history with Egypt. So that was seen as being anti-patriotic. Now, Josiah's son, uh, Jehoahaz, he was pro-Babylon, but his other son, Jehoiakim, was pro-Egypt. And so when Josiah died, uh, they did not put uh, Jehoiakim on the throne because he was pro-Egypt. He also had some major character flaws. Instead, the people anointed Jehoahaz as king, but he only lasted three months because the Egyptians fought the Babylonians to a stalemate, and when that was settled, Pharaoh Necho then sent an army down uh, to Jerusalem, removed Jehoahaz from power, and set Jehoiakim, someone who was pro-Egypt, on the throne. But three years into Jehoiakim's reign, the situation changes entirely again. The Babylonians, now under a new general, Nebuchadnezzar, smashed the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish, annihilating every single Egyptian soldier. I always think it's interesting when it says that they annihilated every Egyptian soldier. I'm like, who went back and told Egypt they lost? Like, there are annals in Egypt that said we lost. I'm like, it couldn't have been every soldier. That's what they say, so that's what I'm telling you. But the defeat of the Egyptian army, it left the promised land open for Nebuchadnezzar to take. And that's the scenario now that we find ourselves in when we start chapter 24. And so it says in chapter 24, verse 1, in his days, King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came up. He invaded the promised land, and he forced every king in that region to bend the knee and become his vassals. And Jehoiakim was one of them. He bent the knee, and he became a vassal to the king of Babylon. Now, the tribute that he had to pay included a bunch of young men from the royal family, the brightest and the best, those who were being trained to be the next people in government. And he took those and he brought them to Babylon to now work in Babylon's government. 
Now included in this tribute were four famous young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as they are better known, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bungalow. Abednego. This is what's known as the first captivity. There will be three of them of Judeans carted off to Babylon. This is the first time, and it's the brightest and best in the royal family. Now, after this is done, Nebuchadnezzar can't stay in the region to kind of secure everything. He has to leave the region shortly after he gets all these people to declare their loyalty because his father, the king, dies. And so he returns to Babylon to be crowned, and then a year later he comes back to the promised land to now invade Egypt. However, the invasion of Egypt did not go well. Neither side claimed victory because the loss of life was absolutely massive. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did get control of certain parts of Egypt, but it didn't last long, and he didn't have the troops to hold it. So Nebuchadnezzar returns to Babylon, and Egypt begins to rebuild. And so three years into his status as being Nebuchadnezzar's vassal, Jehoiakim decides to rebel against Babylon, trusting that a re-strengthened, rebuilt Egypt will come to his aid. And so it says three years later, it says, then he turned and rebelled against him, against Nebuchadnezzar. He revolted. He refused to pay any more tribute, booted out the Babylonian officials, and he said, we're going to go it alone. You want to you take it from us? Then come take it from us, buddy. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 27, the prophet was around when all this happened. He was ministering during this time. And in chapter 27, we see his prophecy to Jehoiakim telling him to not trust in Egypt. In Jeremiah 27, verses 9 through 11, he tells the king, he says, therefore, Jeremiah 27, 9, do not hearken, do not listen you to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie unto you, to remove you far from your land, and that I should drive you out, and that you should perish. But instead of rebelling, this is what the Lord says to them, the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, those will I let remain still in their own land, says the Lord, and they'll till it, and they will dwell within. Now, when Jeremiah writes this, he's recalling, it's not, this, that, that chapter is not happening in real time, he's recalling numerous prophecies he gave to different kings that he served. And he's remembering this time that he gave this advice to Jehoiakim, where he was there in the court, and all these hucksters are coming in, one after another, coming in, and they're prophesying. You know, I'm the enchanter, enchanter so-and-so, and I've been speaking with the dead, and this is what they tell me. You, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. And you've got one after another. They're walking into the White House, and they're telling you, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. All from different sources. And so now Jeremiah comes in. What do you think, Jeremiah? Jeremiah says, don't listen to any of these guys. Any of these guys? None of them. But they're all telling me it's a good idea. Well, they're doing this because the enemy wants to destroy you. They're lying. Now, 
I want to throw something out at you here because we're going to get into this in a minute, that God was, was planning to judge the nation. And yet even though God's planning to judge the nation because of their sin, he sends Jeremiah to plead with them because he doesn't want to judge their sin. I, I, I understand that there are parts of the Old Testament that are sometimes hard to swallow. There's also parts of the New Testament that are hard to swallow. But just because there are parts that sometimes you go, man, that's hard, Lord, that's a hard truth. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden when we think of the Old Testament description of God that he's just all, you know, hellfire and brimstone. That is a, such an inaccurate representation of the Lord. There is just as much of the mercy of God, of the kindness of God, of the loyalty of God, of the grace of God in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. So even though God is planning this, he warns them. He says, if you do this and you listen to these guys, all of you will be removed from your lands. But in contrast, if you will bend the knee, if you will submit basically to God's discipline, if you'll submit to it, then you'll be able to stay in your land, you'll be able to till it. In other words, you're going to prolong the, you'll push back the judgment that's coming. You know, that was Josiah's whole thing. Remember, they find a copy of the scripture, they read it to him, and Josiah tears his clothes and he goes, we're done for. We violated all of this. And then he goes to the prophetess, Ahulda, and he says, what do we do? What do we do? And she says to him, she goes, you're right, judgment is coming because your heart was tender, because you bent the knee. It's not going to happen in your day. Josiah worked with all of his being to go, well, if it can be prolonged in my day, if it can be pushed down the road in my day, it can, we can keep pushing it down and we just keep walking with the Lord. And then it will never happen. And he did everything within his power to try to set his kingdom up for after he was gone, and people would just keep walking with the Lord even after he dies and they walk right back into all that stuff and they have these wicked kings, even after that, the Lord is warning them through prophets saying, if you'll just submit and bend the knee, then you can push it down the road. It won't happen in your day. I'll be merciful to you. God warned King Jehoiakim not to rebel, but he didn't listen do with that what you want. <laughs> I, think there's a, I think there's a holy correction and, and rebuke to us here to be, be those who bend the knee. I don't, I don't ever want to get a hard heart. Like I've had, have you ever had those moments in your life when you're hard-hearted? It's like awful. It's miserable. I don't ever want to get a hard heart. I don't want to ever get to the place when I just won't listen to anyone and anything because I just think I know what I'm doing. So there's a holy warning there for us. Don't be like Jehoiakim. Well, we go back to 2 Kings 24 and verse 2. And so why this revolt doesn't go well for it says, the Lord, verse 2, sent against him bands of the Chaldees and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Ammon and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servants, the prophets, 
Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did. So here we see that God moves Nebuchadnezzar to start sending troops to soften up Judah before he invades. But who does he ascribe it to? He describes it to the Lord. The Lord sent these troops, these segments of the army to come in from these various groups here. You see, when Judah rebelled against Babylon, they didn't rebel alone. They joined other nations, the Philistines, the Sidonians. All of them entered this pro-Egypt pact. But rather than send a full army to deal with them, Nebuchadnezzar orders these small regiments from the nations that remained loyal to him, and he says, send your troops in to soften them up. And because Judah was the nearest, the one closest to all these other nations, they bore the brunt of it. The Troops from the Chaldees, that's southern Babylonia. The troops from the Syrians and the Moabites and, and the Ammonites. These are all Judah's immediate neighbors. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servants, the prophets. And then it's almost like if we didn't understand it, he says, surely at the commandment of the Lord, this happened to Judah. <laughs> Twice the writer says that this was the Lord's doing, not Nebuchadnezzar's doing. And yet, who's the one who gave the order? Well, from history, we know that it was Nebuchadnezzar who gave this order. And Nebuchadnezzar believed the plan made perfect sense. But the plan originated not with Nebuchadnezzar. It originated with the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, a famous verse, Proverbs 21, verse 1, it says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will. King's heart's in the hand of the Lord. Now, this verse has been misunderstood and used by enemies of the Scripture to say, oh, so everything's God's fault. Every wicked thing any ruler does, it's all God's fault because if the king's heart's in his hand, he turns it wherever he wants, then apparently God turned it into all these horrible ways. Brings up a good question. Does this verse mean that God is responsible for every action of every king of all time? Is every decision made by a king always God's will since he's the one who moves the king's heart? No. In fact, that view is completely inconsistent with Scripture. What, what did God send Moses to the king of Egypt to do? I mean, the message was clear, right? The instructions weren't confusing. Let my people go. That's not confusing, right? Ten times he sends Moses to Pharaoh. Let my people go. And yet, ten times the Pharaoh resists the Lord. God's will was for Solomon to remain idol-free, to not marry multiple wives or to not multiply riches. You say, how do I know that's God's will? Because Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us God's will for the king is don't do this, 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 and this, and make sure you do this and this. He gives him like two or three things to do and four things to not do. Solomon violated every single thing God told the kings not to do. So I know what God's will was. I know what God wanted for Solomon. I know what God wanted Solomon to do. And yet, Solomon disobeyed. So that can't be the case that everything a king does, that God's the one that moves him to do that because God's not the author of evil. So when we look at this, 
What does the Scripture say? Well, the Scripture does not say in Proverbs 21.1 that God turns every king's heart wherever he wants it to go every single time a king makes a decision. That's not what it says. The start of the verse shows what Solomon's getting at when he says that. Solomon says the king's heart's in God's hand. In other words, the Lord can do with that heart whatever the Lord wants. But that does not mean that's the way the Lord always interacts with a king. That would be inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. Therefore, Proverbs 21.1 and verses 2 and 3 of our study tonight are a sobering reminder. No king is all-powerful. None. We might look at our government and think, God, we can't stop these people. They're too powerful. But they are not too powerful for the Lord. Not at all. The president's heart, our congressman's heart, our senator's hearts, our Supreme Court justice hearts, our governor's heart, our local authorities' hearts, they're all in God's hands, and God can steer them wherever He wants, whenever He wants. Now, that, of course, raises the question, okay then, so why doesn't God overrule (laughs) our wonderful leaders? (laughs) Why doesn't God overrule a wicked heart? Why doesn't God overrule our leaders and save our country from this mess? Why doesn't He do it for other nations? I would encourage you to do an interesting study. Look at the times in the Scripture where God moves on the heart of a king, where He acts out what what Solomon tells us in Proverbs 21.1. And you'll find something very, very interesting. God doesn't overrule our leaders and save us from our current mess because God's intervention isn't for overruling a wicked heart and making it a godly heart. God's intervention that Solomon's describing is to judge a wicked heart. God moves. Remember looking in, when we read in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and he says to Russia, he says to, to God, Magi, he goes, there's going to come a thought into your, a wicked, evil thought into your heart. You're going to look at this land that seems ripe for the taking, that looks like they're at peace, that they're not ready for you to invade, and you're going to think to yourself, I could just take that. And, but then note what the Lord says. He says, okay, that's how you're going to be. I'm going to put a hook in your mouth. I'm going to bring you down to be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. God doesn't just arbitrarily just move people because he's like, well, they're not doing a good job, so I'm just going to change their heart. That's not what he does. God does not violate our free will even when he moves in our hearts. So when we read that verse that the hand of the heart is in, there's a sobering thought that Solomon's trying to get across to kings and to people who are under the oppression of kings. It's that God can deal with that wicked man and he can bring judgment. doesn't matter what they're trying to do. They are not more powerful than the Lord. But here's the sad truth. Because we say, well, why doesn't God judge? Like, why doesn't God kill our president or kill this person or whatever? Like, why doesn't he just remove him out of the way? Why doesn't God do things like this in nations where they have horrible, wicked dictators? Why doesn't God just get rid of them? Because if God gets to a place where he must bring judgment... There is so much destruction that follows because a wicked ruler is always evidence of a wicked culture. 
A wicked ruler doesn't rule independently of a whole host of other people who are propping them up, who support them, who are all making bank out of all of this at the same time. And so when God has to judge a wicked ruler, there's a massive destruction that follows. When God judges Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, look at what happens to the army. Four-fifths are killed. Go Google it, how big Russia's army is right now. That's a lot of destruction. When I read through the loss of life over the various conflicts that have occurred in in our history, and in some of these things, some of these wars, some of these conflicts, you, you see how much loss of life there was. And then you start to imagine what's happened to cities that God judged over the years. If God gets to a place where he must bring judgment, even though he preserves the righteous, so much destruction takes place. And the Bible tells us that judgment in the book of Isaiah is his slow work. That God only does it when it's absolutely necessary. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. Jeremiah, when he was watching his people being carried off in chains after the third captivity when Nebuchadnezzar burns the city to the ground, he writes the book of Lamentations, watching from traditionally is thought to be Golgotha, the Grotto, Jeremiah's grotto is one of those eye sockets that characterizes that Golgotha hill. But Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, Jeremiah utters those famous words. He says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now realize what he's watching when he pens those words. When he says those words, his city's gone, the temple's gone. He's watching his people walk off in chains. We should be not existing right now, he says. It's only the Lord's mercies that we're just not completely wiped out. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Great is your faithfulness. Their mercies are new every morning. God moves in judgment when people have stopped responding to his words, when there's no more options left. And so what we need to pray for is not, God, get control of our our rulers. We need to pray for God to grant us repentance. Not God to overrule our leaders' hearts so that they set us up for judgment. I I don't want that. You know, I hear some people talk, some preachers, the way they talk, you think, you, you look like you're looking forward to getting judged. I, I have not witnessed the terror people throughout the world have witnessed. I've had the unfortunate 
honor to minister to people who've gone through horrifying things. Could you imagine if God were to judge our nation and that would be all around us? I, I don't want that. So I'm not praying for God to kill our leaders or overrule their hearts so that we can be set up for judgment. They just keep making foolish decisions and, and just fine. Repentance is the only solution that gets us out of this without judgment. It's the only solution. Repentance is the only way to forestall judgment. That's what we need to pray for, is for God to grant our nation, our culture, our leaders repentance. You need to pray for the president. Pray that God would grant him repentance. Now, God's reason for needing to judge Judah was the horrible wickedness that occurred during Manasseh's reign. And in particular, God brings up in verse 4 the innocent lives that Manasseh took. It says, he did this for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did, verse 4, and also. So all that he did, but also. In other words, this is something that really stuck out. For the innocent blood that he, Manasseh, shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord, powerful statement here, he says he would not pardon, would not pardon. Innocent here refers to the persecution of the righteous. Manasseh had arrested and killed many of the people of God who were faithful to his word, many of the faithful prophets. He arrested and killed Isaiah the prophet according to tradition. He allowed the worship site to exist there in the valley of Tophet, the worship site to Molech where children were being sacrificed. And because of that, the Lord would not pardon, he says, literally means he was not willing to forgive, release, or remove the guilt that's associated with that wrongdoing. This is interesting because it does make us ponder because you think to yourself, well, is there any hope for me if I've done something like that? If I've shed innocent blood, is there any hope for me? God, very clearly in his word, declares that he is willing and desiring to forgive any sin committed by an individual. The Bible says if we, as individuals, confess our sins, right, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a biblical truth. But that verse does not apply to nations. It does not apply to nations. In fact, God refuses to overlook this kind of wickedness in a nation. It's so interesting. when We, we don't apply things to nations the same way we do to individuals. There is something about nations where God says righteousness exalts a nation, but wickedness is a reproach to any people. And there comes a place when if the wickedness, the stench of it, comes up to the Lord, he can't just overlook it and not do something in the same way that he can pardon us when we come to him for mercy. There is something about Remember when Cain killed Abel and God said to him, the blood of your brother, it cries out to me for what? Justice. Justice. So one of the things you'll hear, even from, from an unbeliever, and, and even Justin addressed it a little bit this morning, the idea, well, if God's good, then why do all these evil things happen? Why isn't God just? Or why doesn't God administer justice? 
Well, if we apply that to individuals, then none of us go to heaven. (laughs) That's where the gospel comes in. But the gospel, Jesus didn't die for specific countries. (laughs) He died for human beings, irrespective of their nationality or their citizenship. And then he translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his love, and he now makes us citizens of heaven. We now look for a city whose builder and maker is God, right? So it doesn't mean I'm no longer an American citizen. The point is, though, is that I have a higher citizenship that matters. So I have, I love my country. Like, I don't want to go anywhere else. Like, all these people are like, ah, oh, sounds like it's elected. I'm moving. I'm like, okay, bye. Go try it anywhere else because it's not going to be better. There might be a couple places, but most of them are not. I love my country. I'm, I'm happy to live here. I'm so thankful for all the good things about it. But there is no promise that God gives to a nation where he just says, well, I'll just pardon you for all your evil. No. In fact, you look through history, and history is very clear. God doesn't. Look at any of the wicked nations that have existed in history, and did any of them just get away with it? So when when people start saying these things, where's God? I'm like, read a history book, man. (laughs) That might be a little harsh. But you get the idea. The promise God makes is this. You want to do well? You want to prosper? Do righteous things. Righteousness exalts a nation. You want to experience reproach? You want to be defeated by your enemies? Then embrace wickedness. Because God refuses to just overlook this kind of wickedness in a nation. No sacrifice can atone for national crimes like this. That's a sobering thought when we consider the sins of our nation and the sins in many other nations today. Some people read the book of Revelation and they think God's a horrible person. Why would you destroy so many? To which I would reply, do you not see all the evil we've done? And this is what blows my mind. It's always the, this is always the contradiction that, that bothers me about atheism, agnosticism, the whole idea that the Bible can't be true because bad things happen and God's supposed to be good or God's supposed to be all-powerful. Like the, the, the biggest thing is the contradiction that I, just, I, can't, I can't ever work through with someone. And they'll say, well, if God's good, then why do all these evil things happen? I'm like, okay, so you want God to deal with the evil things. Yes, okay, then you're in trouble. No, 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 God needs to be merciful to me. It doesn't, no, you, you can't have it both ways. Why would God do that? Why? They look at the judgment in the Bible, that's, a, what an, that's an evil God, that's a horrible God. And then they complain because God, why do you let evil happen? And I'm just, I, I don't understand it. It is a logical fallacy. <laughs> you can't hold both those positions. They, they contradict. And so I say, do you not see all the evil we do? Do you not see all the evil that is perpetrated by governments and leaders throughout the world? I mean, we have an entire organization that's designed, its whole design is to unite nations together. And yet it took them like three months 
to acknowledge the fact that women and children were raped in the nation of Israel. Three months to even acknowledge it. And so while God will spare the righteous individuals in Judah. If you read the book of Ezekiel, you, Ezekiel has a vision where he sees where God marks an angel. He sends an angel to mark the righteous, that they might be protected when Nebuchadnezzar comes. While God will spare the righteous individuals in Judah, he says, I will not spare Judah. These national evils demanded justice. And you say, but, but this is a different generation. Why would God judge this generation for Manasseh's sins? Well, Jehoiakim and this generation, they're not innocent. In, in Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 20 through 24, you didn't know a human being could preach four verses like this. You say, this was, this was supposed to be kind of a quick, easy chapter, Pastor Will. Jeremiah 26, verses 20 through 24 tells us what Jehoiakim did. Jeremiah 26, verse 20, And there was also a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against the city and against the land according to all the words of Jeremiah. In other words, he was kind of a, someone who was preaching the same truths that Jeremiah was preaching. And when Jehoiakim the king with all his mighty men and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Elijah heard about it, he was afraid, and he fled and went into Egypt. And so Jehoiakim the king sent men into Egypt, namely Elnathan the son of Akbar, and certain men with him into Egypt. And they fetched forth Uriah out of Egypt and brought him unto Jehoiakim the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his body into the graves of the common people. He wasn't even just content to run the guy out of his home, homeland his own country. He ended up extraditing him to execute him. Why? Because he didn't prophesy stuff he wanted to hear. So he was just as guilty as Manasseh. Well, verse 5, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, and back in chapter 24 of 2 Kings, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So he says, you want to find out more about this? bad king, read, read the royal histories. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin his son reigned in his stead. And the king of Egypt came not again anymore out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt unto the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. Interesting, unlike all the other kings, this guy's burial is not mentioned at all. Now, he dies in the same month that Nebuchadnezzar leaves Babylon with his full army to come crush this rebellion. He dies in the middle of the rebellion, leaving his 18-year-old son Jehoiachin to deal with his failure. And the Egyptian support that Jehoiakim was counting on never materialized, because just like Jeremiah predicted, Egypt was a broken reed. The Babylonians had secured the area of the river Egypt. The river Egypt here is not the Nile. It's a wadi that's south of uh, present-day Gaza that kind of marked a, a boundary between the promised land and Egypt. He controlled all that area. Egypt did not come to Judah's aid. So what happened to Jehoiakim? What happened to his body? Well, Jeremiah 22, verses 18 and 19, he prophesied what was going to happen 
And he says this in Jeremiah twenty-two eighteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they won't lament for him saying, ah, oh, my brother, or ah, oh, sister. Like, not that he's a sister. The idea is that's what you do when you lose someone you care about. No one's going to utter any of the phrases people normally do when they lose someone they love. No, they won't lament for him saying, ah, oh, Lord, or ah, oh, his glory. Man, he was such a good king. Nope, none of that. He'll be buried with the burial of a donkey. He'll be drawn, dragged out, and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Well, what happened to Jehoiakim? Well, when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, he planned to clap Jehoiakim in chains to carry him off to Babylon. That's what the Chronicle tells us. But because Jehoiakim died before Nebuchadnezzar got there, what Nebuchadnezzar found when he arrived was Jehoiakim's body, because he lays siege to the city, he finds Jehoiakim's body rotting out in the, just in the, in the ground. Someone flung it over the walls of Jerusalem instead of burying it to rot under the sun. Maybe current governing officials hoped that that would kind of supplicate the, the Nebuchadnezzar, that he'd back off. Hey, we, we killed our king, or our, our king died. We don't want anything to do with him. Didn't even give him a burial. We're, we're good. You, know, you can go back home. I don't know who did it. The Bible doesn't tell us who did it, why they did it, only that it happened. And here's the question. What good was his, was his shiny new palace now that he taxed all the people for? He never got to enjoy the only legacy he had, which brings an application to us because it begs the question, what are you and I investing our lives into? Are we investing into our own palace at the expense of our marriage or our family or even our service to the Lord? Let's not do that. Well, Jehoiakim's rotting body did not stop Nebuchadnezzar from coming, verse 8. It says, Jehoiachin, his son, was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. And his mother's name was Dehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. Here's a summary of Jehoiachim's reign. In the scriptures, don't be confused, he's also sometimes called Jeconiah or just Coniah. Sometimes he'll be called that. I don't know why. Now, when these last few kings were crowned, they took political names that were different from their birth name. Their birth name. So his name wasn't Jehoiachin, but Jehoiachin was a pro-Egypt name, which I personally find a really dumb decision when Nebuchadnezzar's breathing down your neck and Egypt isn't coming to help. But that's what he did. And God says in just the three months that he reigned, the three months that he was resisting Babylon, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How can you do evil in just three months? Well, the same way his uncle Jehoahaz did, who also only reigned for three months. He resisted the Lord's leadership. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 21, Jeremiah has this to say about Jehoiachin. He doesn't have much, but he says this, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah says, I spoke unto you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. So, so God's counting not just the three months of evil reign. He's counting an entire life of rejecting the Lord, of not wanting anything to do with the Lord. There's a challenge there. If you have children in your home, 
that their attitude towards God matters no matter how young they are. It's something you need to address no matter how young they are. They're never too young to have a conversation about their heart toward the Lord. And then when he became king in his prosperity, when he was raised up and became king, he says, I spoke to you. I wanted to lead you. I wanted to help you. But you refused to listen. That's how he did evil. Instead of submitting to Babylon and trusting the Lord's promise to take care of them, he maintained this pro-Egypt stance. He didn't remove the idols or the pagan worship that was going on in the temple. And Jeremiah had warned him. He warned him there. You've got, if you keep reading, you keep reading through verse 24, he warns him, you have little time to repent. You might think, okay, I, I just became king. I need to I get myself settled, establish my power. You're not going to have any of that time. You've got very little time to repent. Judah's, he tells him, Judah's judgment is like a woman in labor. Her water is already broken. The labor pains are already there. And anytime the water breaks and the labor pains are there, it means the baby's on the way. More or less. Some of you are like, I had 46 hours of labor after my water broke. Still soon. Everything that happened to his father was the warning that he would not have the luxury of years to repent. The nation was already in labor. And so when he refused to listen, God dealt with him. Verse 10. And at that time, it says, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. His father died in December. He was raised to the throne in December. That March, that following March after his father's death, Nebuchadnezzar's army arrived. They laid siege to the city. The siege did not last long. Jehoiachin surrendered the city almost immediately. Verse 12. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers and the king of Babylon took him, captured him in the eighth year of his reign. Not eighth year of Jehoiachin's, he only reigned three months. The eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, don't let anyone tell you and say the Bible has a contradiction or the Bible's not true because this occurred in the seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign according to the Babylonian Chronicle, which I don't know why we always assume that other ancient writings are more accurate than the Bible, which is also an ancient writing. But just a little bit of research understands why there's a discrepancy between what the Bible says and what the Babylonian Chronicle says. The Babylonians never counted the ascension year of their king as part of their reign. So there's no discrepancy. The seventh year under the Babylonian way of counting is the eighth year of his reign. It's just how they did things. So the king, his family, all his governing officials, they surrender to Nebuchadnezzar which brings the city fully under Nebuchadnezzar's control. And look what he does, verse 13. He, Nebuchadnezzar, carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house. The word the treasures means all the riches, all the wealth, all that the people had donated to the Lord, all the taxes his father had collected to build his beautiful palace. Nebuchadnezzar took it all. And he cut in pieces. The word there, cut in pieces, means to cut off or to trim off or to strip off. Many of the utensils Solomon made were overlaid with gold. And so he stripped off, it says, all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. 300 plus years of 
service in the temple was now just gone. These holy items now were stripped of everything that made them special and separate and unique. And this happened, the writer tells us, just as the Lord said it would. In 2 Kings 20, verse 17, Behold, the days come, Isaiah told Hezekiah, that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Jeremiah 25, 20, verse 5, Jeremiah prophesied the same exact thing. And so he plunders the palace, plunders the temple, and then now we see the second captivity occurs. Verse 14, it says, and he carried away all Jerusalem. He took hostage, all Jerusalem, all the princes, all the mighty men of valor, so all the, the fighting soldiers, even 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and the smiths. In other words, they would not have the skilled people who could make high-quality implements of war. Nope, we're going to take all those away. None of them remained, it says, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, and his officers, and the mighty of the land. Those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon, on all the men of might, even 7,000, all these 7,000 soldiers and craftsmen and smiths, a thousand of them, all that were strong and uh, apt for war, fit for war. Even them, the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. There were three captivities, as I said earlier, due to Babylon. The first we already mentioned where Daniel was taken. In this captivity, this is the one that Ezekiel's taken. He was a priest in training who the very year that Nebuchadnezzar came was the year he was supposed to start doing his work, 25 years old. This was the day he'd been training for his whole life. This was the day, the year that he was going to get to start serving in the temple. Ezekiel never got to serve in the temple. You want to know the mercy of the Lord? Who's the guy who got the vision of the millennial temple in the Old Testament? Ezekiel. Moses, you can't enter the promised land. And then who do we see on the mountaintop with Jesus? Oh, he got to go in <laughs> eventually. <laughs> I wonder what it would be like for Ezekiel in his resurrection body when Jesus is reigning. I imagine he might be pretty close to the front of the line when it goes into serving the Lord at the temple. Ezekiel ends up being taken hostage to Babylon, and it's from there that he prophesies and ministers to God's people there. So you've got Daniel serving in the government of Babylon, you've got Ezekiel ministering to the exiles in Babylon, and then you have Jeremiah ministering to the people who are still in Judah. God's still covering all his people, loving them, ministering his truth to them, and his grace and his mercy, despite their hardness of heart. The only left behind, who? The poorest of the land. It means, literally means the least skilled or the unimportant. These would not be government-trained uh, people, no politically or militarily trained leaders. It left Jerusalem in an awful position. No skilled craftsmen, no trained soldiers. Only the least skilled were left to aid the next king. Now, Jehoiachin is also taken off, and he would die in Babylon. He would never come back home. But he wouldn't die in a dungeon. In fact, at the end of 2 Kings, we'll see that there's still hope, that God's heart is toward His people, that there's mercy even in judgment. But I won't spoil that. We'll do that next Sunday. 
But we'll finish up these last few verses here real quick. Verse 17. And the king of Babylon, he made Mataniah his father's brother. So this is Josiah's, one of his other four sons. So three of Josiah's sons become king of Judah. So the king of Babylon makes Mataniah his father's brother, king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. Josiah, this was his youngest son from his second marriage. And his name, Mataniah, means a gift from the Lord, beautiful name. Nebuchadnezzar changes his name to mean righteousness is from the Lord, judgments from the Lord. Perhaps this implied that the whole reason I'm here is because God was for me to deal with your revolt. Don't rebel anymore, or righteousness will get you again from the Lord. (laughs) Thus we move to Judah's fourth king in just 12 years, Josiah's third son to rule, and their last king, Zedekiah. Verse 18, And Zedekiah was twenty and one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah, not of Libna. This is not the Jeremiah the prophet. And he, Zedekiah, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. He reigns, though, for eleven years in contrast to his nephew who only reigned for three months. That's eleven years of chances for the nation to repent. Eleven years to forestall the coming doom. But what did they do with those eleven years? It says he did evil just like his brother Jehoiakim had done. Zedekiah was a greedy, weak leader who exploited the people for his own purposes. He didn't deal with the idolatry. He didn't deal with the innocent bloodshed. In fact, he continued to be pro-Egypt despite Egypt's failure to ever bring help to Judah. He did it despite God's warnings to forsake Egypt and to trust in him. In fact, Zedekiah was such a weak king that Ezekiel never recognizes his reign as legitimate. Anytime he talks about what year it is, he goes, it was in this year of Jehoiachin. He still recognized that Jehoiachin was king. He thought this guy was an illegitimate king since Jehoiachin was still alive and captive in Babylon. Now, Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11 gives us an ugly but vivid picture of the idolatry he permitted during his reign. And because of that idolatry, Ezekiel actually witnesses the presence of God leave the temple during Zedekiah's reign. Zedekiah's relationship with Jeremiah shows just how his wishy-washy he was as a leader. He has Jeremiah imprisoned for preaching about the coming judgment if they rebel against Babylon, but then he secretly goes to visit Jeremiah to hear God's message because he knows God sent Jeremiah to speak to him. Jeremiah 38, 19, he says this to Jeremiah. My heart goes out to him, but at the same time, I think... This is all on you, buddy. And Zedekiah the king said unto Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews that are fallen. They've, they've gone out to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand, and they mock me, they torture me. In the end, he knows what's right. He knows what God wants him to do, and he knows that God's right. But he refuses to listen because he's worried about being tortured by the Babylonian faction in his government that's not loyal to him. And so the fear of man keeps him from fearing God. And God's judgment eventually comes despite 11 years of chances to repent. Verse 20, for through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah until it had, he had cast them out from his presence that Zedekiah rebelled 
against the king of Babylon. He did it again. And the Lord says he allowed it to happen because of his anger, his anger against their sin. This was it, the final straw. God had removed his hand completely from the nation of Judah, and his plan to remove them from the land because of their sin is set in full motion. The saddest plan of God is when he takes his hand away and lets us do as we please. Where God removes all the Bob's barricades that he's been putting up, and he just lets us go our our way unhindered. I think the scariest times of my life is when I knew I was probably heading in the wrong direction and the Lord wasn't getting in my way anymore. Those were the moments when I got the most frightened because I realized I was that far away from the Lord. If you're there right now, man, go running back to the Lord. (laughs) I'm so grateful for the, the speed bumps he puts in my path when I'm not where I'm supposed to be. This is what's going to happen when the Antichrist comes onto the scene. God will remove his restraining hand that's over the enemy and his mystery of iniquity, his plan. And what you'll see during the Great Tribulation is humanity getting everything that they want. That's what it'll be. And the Bible tells us it will bring us to the brink of our destruction, of destroying ourselves. Well, in Judah's case, they got their way. They rebelled against Babylon yet again, and this time Nebuchadnezzar's done with them. There will be no new puppet king, no Jerusalem left. There'll be no Judah left when he's finished with this final invasion. So we'll get to that in chapter 25. Let's all stand. I said two weeks ago, you know, the the slogan from the Marines, a few good men, that's all we need. A few good men can do so much, but a few bad bad men can also do so much. Josiah set him up for success and look at how quickly it deteriorated because of a few bad men. You might look at your family situation, your life right now, and you might think, well, what do I do? I'm just one person. Yes. Walk with the Lord. God can do wonderful things with that. But all it takes is just one person who decides, I'm not going to walk with the Lord to make things very difficult. Don't be that person. Amen? Lord, that's our heart. We don't want to be any of these three guys who reigned over Judah. We want to be, Lord, like Josiah. So, Lord, help us to be those who have humble hearts, tender hearts towards you, not hard hearts. Let it not be our testimony that we just wouldn't listen to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.